Michael Perlet. I'm Asher Collins, and together we bring you Exercise Equals Life Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the Exercise Equals Life Podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Michael Bruneau from Drexel University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He comes to us as an associate professor of exercise science and extensive background within the field of exercise science. So thank you, Dr. Bruno, for coming on. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Since no one's going to introduce me, I'll just jump in. My name is Asher Collins. (laughs) Really nice. It's fine. I'm the co-host of the podcast. (laughs) I swear, I work very closely with Michael Berlet. He's a dear friend of mine, and we get along fine. So that's all good. Thanks, Mike. Awesome. Uh, Anytime. (laughs) (laughs) No respect. There's no respect. So the other Michael. Yes. Wanted to touch base again, just reintroducing myself quickly. I'm an occupational therapist by profession, predominantly an outpatient, heavy in geriatric uh, and, and ortho and all those good things that one finds in, in outpatient, but now running Optimal Home Care Inc., which is a company which provides those services to assisted living. When I read your bio, yes. I lit up like a bulb when I hit the paragraph that said your research interests includes the use of physical activity and exercise as a non-pharmacological lifestyle therapy. It's the last thing I'm going to read off the page because I am, and so is Michael Perlet, so intensely convinced. I had mentioned before we went on the air that our birthdays are one day and 35 years apart, Michael's and myself. He's 25 and I'm 60. And yet we train four or five days a week, side by side, virtually doing identical things and identical weights. Although I admit he's, his movements are a little prettier than mine, but we, we get it done. Anyway, the point is that the fun thing about having an intergener- intergenerational friendship is that you see the end point, if you will, not exactly the end point, I hope, but you see the end product of a lifetime of living as he is now. So if you start at 25, here you are at 60, and the quality of of life is optimized, health is optimized, and I will volunteer, I am on no meds whatsoever. That's great. Yeah. So when I looked at your research, again, I just, I literally, I'm a child, I goosebump, I'm like, yes, that's the whole point. One, don't get sick to begin with. Two, if it's happened, okay, what do we do to keep the pharmacology down and your your health optimized and the use of physical activity absolutely now just just as a response first thanks for uh for reading the profile and having an interest in some of the work that i do um when it comes i'll tell you this when it comes to um how i got into this game i had the pleasure of working with uh, the senior editor of acsm's guidelines for exercise testing and prescription couple editions ago now, but Linda Pescatello, she's at UConn, and Linda is all about exercise prescription, right? So not a one-size-fits-all approach, but like if somebody is living with diabetes, how do you, what's sort of the sweet science of how we design the frequency, the intensity, time, type, volume, progression, so that way that person's chronic condition can still be managed, but for example, we can increase the amount of glucose sensitivity that's uptaken by the cell and better control um, the person's blood glucose level as, on an absolute basis, right? A lot of Linda's work is really in blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really got interested both from a, uh, a personal 
endeavor because I've struggled. My weight's been up and down. I played football in high school and college. And so my weight's been as low as 185. It's been as high as 280 in college. So, you know, so it's had to fluctuate sometimes based off the positions that I was playing. But um, I, I really always thought that um, if people just control their variables and you're not going to be able to control, you're not going to be perfect with regards to exercise every day. You're no. not going to be able to be perfect with your nutrition every day. But if we can make one decision, that one decision of just choosing to exercise, right? Mm -hmm. It really is a panacea that solves a lot of other problems from things like lowering anxiety and experiences with, that people may have with depression to controlling blood pressure, to controlling weight, to improving insulin sensitivity, to improving energy. And so I uh, really see some of the side effects that certain medications have on people mm -hmm. and um, exercise is really one thing that it's the one decision. If we just make that one choice, it we really can really improve all components of wellness, not just physical, but intellectual, psych psychological, spiritual, emotional. Um, and so to me, it, I was really interested in working with clinical populations that have chronic disease mm -hmm. to see if the lifestyle therapies could be effective at um, preventing, treating, and perhaps controlling uh, blood pressure regulation um, and, and body weight status and, and uh, insulin sensitivity and those types of metrics. Yeah, Dr. Uh, Bruno, if you could just uh, tap into what glucose sensitivity means and what that means for the average person, right? Because we're exercise scientists, physiologists, we understand that, but for the person listening, I mean, the importance yeah, so, of that. Yeah, so the reason why... Um, like insulin sensitivity in being able to uptake glucose that we consume broken down in the mouth and then the gut via food into macronutrients that becomes carbohydrate. The body can store that carbohydrate in two locations, right? Can either store it principally in other locations too, but predominantly the liver and the muscle. And it's actually packed greater, greater packed for the punch in the liver, but on an absolute basis, you actually store more total uh, glycogen in your muscles, right? Because you have way more muscle tissue than you do for liver tissue. But um, if you were just to take a sort of subsection of your, um, if you were to take a, a subsection of, of your muscle that's relevant to your liver size, you would have more in the liver tissue than you would in the muscle on a cross-sectional pound for pound basis. Mm -hmm. So um, when people experience things like insulin sensitivity, really what's happening is there's a larger amount of blood glucose that's passing through the person's cardiovascular system. And that could be potentially problematic. So um, there's two major reasons why people uh, that, that are mechanistically why people think that insulin insensitivity becomes a problem, particularly for people that live with type 2 diabetes. And that is that Either it's located within the organ that releases the insulin, the islets of Langerhans and the pancreatic uh, beta cells. Um, and so is it a form of watered down insulin that the pancreas is producing? It's not as concentrated. And so because it's a it may be a little bit more dilute, it's not as effective in doing what it's designed to do mechanistically. Um, and then we think about a receptor problem. So at the muscle site, at the liver site, if the receptors aren't capable of recognizing um the macronutrient that we're consuming and uptaking that glucose into the cell, then it becomes problematic because it's not going to bind, right? So you have the gland that releases the hormone, 
you have the transport medium, which is the blood that it travels through. You have the hormone, which is the chemical product, and you have the receptor that needs to be configured in a way that the hormone can bind to the receptor and then exert its effects the way the body wants to function. So if you have a receptor and the receptors are all occupied, we can't accommodate any more um, insulin to bind to the insulin receptors. And so as a consequence of that, we have too much of a demand for high insulin, which is why a lot of type 2 diabetics have hyperinsulinemia, and we can't actually uptake it into the cell because all the receptors are occupied. So um, two of the major hypotheses that I think the literature would talk about is either the receptor basis for insulin insensitivity, as well as um, the pancreas is just being overworked. And so the quality of insulin that's being able to be secreted from that organ isn't as potent as it would be if it wasn't taxed. It's such a sort of a fatigue, mm -hmm. so to speak. And so you have the result is abnormally high blood glucose levels. And to the aim of why it might be more centrally located to the the beta ones in the pancreas is that um, what do they give folks that live with type two diabetes? They give them shots of insulin, right? So fire with fire. Mm -hmm. So they're putting a very concentrated uh, dose of that insulin exogenously into the into the body, and then the glucose comes down as more control. So that kind of dictates that it may be more closely approximated to the mm -hmm. gland that's releasing the hormone to begin with than the receptors, but both are, are largely considered to be acceptable hypotheses uh, for that problem. Gotcha. Well, that, that's a, a very cogent, clear explanation of something that's insanely complex. So thank you for that. Yes. Um, the thrust of your research, swing back to that, because mm -hmm. I'm just so, so, so relieved that somebody's doing this actually. What, is there a specific focal point for your research in terms of exercise and it's like what? What are the three? Obviously, diabetes is a big one. Cardiovascular, mm -hmm. I think, would be a big one. Have you have you narrowed or kind of broadened your approach and your research to include, the, let's say, the top three common chronic illnesses that Americans are dealing with currently? So it would be blood pressure, cardiovascular issues, mm -hmm. and and diabetes. Are those your three focus, or is it broader? Yeah. So there's a couple ways that I think about this. So when people ask me, what's your line of research? I think this is a good thing that you can use for other guests you may have on the podcast too. But when I really try to get the core of what the person does mm -hmm. um, in healthcare and you have a PICO format, right? Populations, mm -hmm. interventions, controller comparisons and outcomes. And one of those four letters really needs to be your anchor, right? Mm -hmm. So and what, and for me, it's clinical exercise physiology, using exercise for its clinical intent. And with that, I can pivot that intervention to many populations that it affects and many outcomes that are implicated with those populations. Then there's some people, somebody like uh, that, you know, she, my late uh, mentor from the University of Connecticut Health Center, Dr. Nancy Petrie, she was a um, contingency management person, right? So she thought that from a psychological perspective, if I use this, can I do it in gamblers and can I do it in substance abusing patients, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, that was her anchor, right? It was that intervention. Some people are population people, like the dean of our College of Nursing and Health Professions here. She is an aging expert. And so she's willing to try any kind of interventions, exercise, diet, stress management techniques, um, dance movement therapy, music, um, pharmacologic, non-pharmacologic, because her anchor is that population. That's, mm -hmm. that's her thing, right? And then some people are outcome people. So let's say, for example, 
um, that somebody is a diabetes expert. Well, their whole thing is blood glucose. They're looking at um, hemoglobin A1C, right? They're looking at oral glucose tolerance tests. So they're all interested in like that outcome mm-hmm. and they explore that outcome in a lot of different populations and try a different, lot of different treatments to control it. So, yep. so for me, um, when I do this, it's the three pillars are these lifestyle therapies for cardiovascular, metabolic, and renal disease, right? And so when I say the word metabolic, that also branches off into uh, the older population where a lot of my work, my interventions are actually being conducted is in uh, Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. So we work in an elder care PACE program. um, And that's really ideal because you have some issues with safety that you have concern with and PACE programs are really great. Sort of a one-stop shop that provides a lot of resources for older folks um, as they live within their homes and are transported to these facilities for their, their uh, lifestyle needs, we'll say, and their healthcare and lifestyle needs. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we label them as participants because they choose to be there, not patients because uh, they're admitted to that particular center. They choose to be there on their own accord. And so a lot of the work that we do there is really to try to address what does an exercise prescription look like for someone that has cognitive impairment? Because, um, you know, the general recommendations for adults is 150 minutes per week, but is that really feasible for somebody that's living with a cognitive impairment, right? Um, does the, is it more important that we get the volume right? We do a lot of smaller bouts throughout the day or do we need that 30 minute session? So we're conducting a resistance training study in West Philadelphia right now, really trying to determine what does that fit look like? Mm-hmm. Um, so that way we can approach some larger clinical trials and try to really make some recommendations that hopefully can make them make themselves into the ACSM guidelines as like, this is the evidence-based recommendations for how people should test and design exercise programs for people with cognitive issues. Um, so that's kind of like, cardiovascular, metabolic, and renal disease are the populations that I pivot through. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's all medically prescribed, supervised clinical exercise programming and understanding all of the medications that go into that. So most of the populations would be people with cardiac rehab, people in bariatric clinics where we're starting to look at exercise curbing appetite. So Mm -hmm. one of the major drivers of that we think of as energy intake and energy expenditure. So trying to create a paradigm where um, energy expenditure can influence energy mm-hmm. intake. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, because physiologically, a lot of the centers that govern our hunger uh, are also very nearby to our thirst centers of the brain. So if we can uh, use physiology in a way that, uh, I guess, takes advantage of those mechanisms, doing mm-hmm. something healthy, um, you might curb appetite, particularly if that exercise is timed at a right time interval. So the the realm is obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular, and Alzheimer's. That's kind of like the big, the general area. And cardiovascular, metabolic, and renal diseases is really where I focus a lot of my effort with populations. Gotcha. That's quite it's, impressive. It is. But the, the, the thing that I find incredibly cool about it, um, and how's that for eloquent? But the thing I find incredibly cool about it is that while you have a focus, and, and that makes sense and you should, you also have a more macro view of there there's applications across all yes conditions and as, you know as an occupational therapist and obviously working with a heavy geriatric population a large portion of them are uh 
well into their 80s and have cognitive issues. And I love the fact that you touched on the safety issue of like, how do you bring an exercise prescription to somebody who has no inherent sense of self-safety? Right. That is the greatest challenge in that population. How do you keep them safe while keeping them active and moving and enjoying life and having a good quality of life? This was one of the major challenges we faced during the pandemic. Um, and I know we're still in the pandemic, but this is th sort of some of the, the major challenges we were in the heart of it before yep. there was vaccine development. And, and that was that, you know, we were running this trial in West Philadelphia face to face. And then, you know, we're talking about a very vulnerable population. It stopped overnight. Right. Um, and so we tried to convert it to an online form. We could do an exercise class and, you know, th things like access safety is somebody yeah. else in the home to help them. Yep. Uh, we were doing mostly TheraBand work. So being able to, you know, someone that can help them position and do the exercises appropriately, making sure that we have their attention um, yeah. from a safety perspective, you know, there is small, but especially in this population, as, as people get a little bit older, there's challenges for, uh, like balance and neuro neuromotor ability. So you worry about if they stand up and fall down, they can't, you know, we're not there. We don't have their address. So it became something where we were concerned and the logistics were getting very difficult. Oh. Um, and equally to that is I was very surprised to see that um, from a healthcare equity perspective, uh, the folks that we serve face to face, a lot of them didn't have, reliable internet access, or they didn't have an iPhone or an iPad that they could just log in and, and exercise with. We took them for granted. And those were some learning pains that I needed to really figure out and learn on the fly um, during COVID. And fortunately, you know, the condition in uh, the status of the pandemic improved about last February or March, and we were able to go back um, about a year ago. So we've been about a year running now where okay. we, we still go back and we're face-to-face -face and we can provide the, the program to the, to the participants um, as we originally intended. So we tried to circumvent it, and then we ran into issues that are important considerations when Absolutely. designing these programs for folks. Yeah, no, you appreciate no, the question. This is Before part of the research you're currently doing? Yes. Or we're doing and continuing to do? Yes, absolutely. So th this project that I talk about, how we had to convert it in COVID, this is all part of that resistance training study that we're conducting in West Philadelphia yeah. for uh, older adults with mild cognitive impairment or living with one or more kinds of um, dementias. So, so Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, et cetera. So did you find it kind of in a sense because of that safety issue, which is so tremendous and, and almost unconquerable from a remote standpoint, um, did you kind of come to a halt? Because a lot of us came to a halt, truthfully, yeah. during the and like we looked really hard at my practice in telehealth, mm -hmm. and I ultimately opted out. I'm like, I can't guarantee anybody's safety if I'm not with them. Yeah, you we know? um, so we Drexel University has their own protocols, and then Mercy Life has their own protocols. So some of the the challenges of working with community partnerships is the institution, from a college and student perspective and faculty standpoint, as an employee. They've got things that they have to protect. And then right. from the clinician's perspective in the PACE program, they got to make sure that their staff and their their participants, that they're going to be safe and that right. by interacting together, it's not going to reduce that. But I have been very fortunate to have excellent um, collaborators at 
Mercy Life West. They're part of Trinity Health Pace programs and uh, the director of research who oversees all the research studies in the whole country um, is somebody that became a very good personal friend to me throughout this process. So she understands the importance of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't have regular exercise programming, whether it's a study or otherwise in their facility. Mm -hmm. And it was important to find a way to work together and make it happen some way. So we did have to stop from 2020 until okay. the fall of 2020, basically. They were starting mm -hmm. to bring participant, a couple participants in, three mm -hmm. to five at a time. Mm -hmm. And so we were really just starting to get back into the swing of things, right? Like how do we design exercise programs where we're double masked and, you know, vaccines were sort of not quite there yet. Right. Um, and then a lot of people started getting the vaccine in like December and January of 2021. Right. And then a lot of, it became more readily available in March, April, May for other, other folks as well. So once we started getting through there, we were like home clear for a little bit, but then yeah. Del Delta came. And then when Delta came, we shut down till like November of that year of 21. And then we were good from like November until like Christmas and then Omicron. And then once we got to February, onward of 2022 till now we've been in the green so hopefully that stays the course because you, well. you wrote out the rapids <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you kept going so kudos to you you know I'm, I, this i appreciate is that invaluable yeah yeah so, michael so you had what, something yeah what's interesting here is with all these breaks and gaps you know within the research how are you able to pick up was it new participants was it um did you yeah yeah, so um, I have a, a mentality in in life that uh, you know a lot a lot of my success is I wasn't really supposed to be the smartest one in the class, or I was always like a B B student, you know, like the kid that would just show up to class, work really hard, but isn't naturally going to be gifted with A grades, right? So um, I I like actually look at these types of like. I don't like when people tell me that something can't be done. I like mm -hmm. to figure out solutions to problems. And um, and so I look at it as a as sort of a challenge and something that I need to overcome, like to be persistent with that. And so, um, you know, we tried in, in, in the pandemic say, well, let's convert it. Let's figure out how to convert this remotely. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we ran into a block there. And, and so you just keep being persistent, adapting, not taking anything personally, I think, is very important. Yes. Yes. <laughs> because it's very easy to blame other people. You know, Life. these people are not allowing me to move forward. And, and it's very easy to get caught in that. But really, every one of us is really, I think it comes down to being responsible for, you know, something that's bigger than ourselves, right? And so um, I thought about, you know, yeah, sure. I could have just said, you know, let's close up shop. Let's not offer this research study. We'll find a center or we'll pivot the project so I can get my data out. But I chose to go the circuitous route um, because the person, the people that we did have in the study, it meant more to them, right? Like, and so it's important to me that we uphold our commitments to the people uh, who not only complete the research study process. So, but we also now offer an exercise class for people that have already finish the protocol and it's a separate class but it's for people that uh, we continue to provide that service to as a thank you for mercy for not dropping us during the covid pandemic so mm -hmm. it's it's not like done as a form of an exchange it's a way of giving back to the larger community um that becomes part of the programming that they can offer and it attracts more people to their center 
That is so nice. And it's quite commendable, right? I think that business mindset that you have, that continuing growth mentality is kind of what ultimately brought us together, right? At the Mid-Atlantic Regional Conference, American sure. College of Sports Medicine this past November. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I think it's where this kind of, this kind of came from. That kind of definitely did. Yeah, to a certain degree, how you do one thing is how you do everything and how you approach everything in your life, right? So, yeah. um, you know, in terms of <clears throat> that, like very much like yourself, I was uh, a business-minded undergraduate student at the time. I worked at Bally Total Fitness, very sales-heavy type of organization, corporate culture, mm -hmm. um, progressed to the level of assistant club manager and sales manager, and then for a while ran a couple of the clubs in Connecticut. Um, all while as an undergrad. And um, so I've always appreciated it. I've studied business as well. And, you know, from it's kind of this concept between financial mindset and um, mission mindset is sort of the challenge that I think we face in a lot of nonprofits, right? Is With a little bit, of, I would add, Michael, onto that. Yes and yes. And yet the thing that the, the fuel in my brain is actually altruism for sure you know what i mean like when i had to reinvent this final time i thought I, you know i'm reasonably smart like you you know I, I, i'm a get it done guy i will get anything done so what do i want to be if i have to reinvent at the time i was 50 10 years ago what do i want to be when i grow up now and i specifically chose healthcare because i'm like you know what i'm at the time of life where when i put my head on the pillow yeah i want to make a living but i also want to know that 20 30 40 people are better because i was on the planet drawing air so exactly. without you saying it, I can sense and pick it up that underneath you, and I certainly know Michael very well, we actually are passionate believers in what we do, and we want to give it as a gift to people who just don't quite get it yet but can. So Absol there's absolutely. there's a kind of altruism to this as well. Yeah, yeah, that was, I could just say, like, you know, that was part of um, when I had the pleasure of meeting Michael at the Mid-Atlantic ACSM conference this past November. I put a lot of pressure on myself because um, the chapter has been growing in size since 2012. Mm -hmm. um, it's regressed a little bit during the pandemic years. Uh, I've been a guest speaker a bunch of times when I was given the opportunity to be president of the chapter uh, last year, we kind of realized that we needed a, a real venue. We couldn't, you know, we can't continue to operate this size of a conference out of a hotel. Right. Um, and so our president elect, who's now the president, Emily Sowers, um, you know, she was great. She worked with me and some of the executive directors of the chapter to go to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, look at a real convention center, like big time, like scale it up to a big time production. Okay. Um, and she's going to be great. And I, and she knows that I have uh, full confidence in her and I'm willing to do anything that I need to, to help make sure she's successful. But I put a lot of pressure on myself for that conference because it was number one, when you're the president, you have to put on your own conference and you want to put on a good pr good product for people that they're going to appreciate. Um, but I also wanted to make sure that we had good representation comes to mind. So we had representation from the strength and conditioning community, the clinical community, the athletic training community, the physician community, OT community, right? Mm -hmm. So we wanted to make sure that we had good representation at that conference. Um, and there's a story I'm not going to share it, but the listeners can ask Michael about it. Michael knows what I'm talking about. And uh, Michael had something very specific that happened with him with our keynote speaker, which is an amazing thing that speaks to the quality of the person Michael is. Um, but you put a lot of pressure on yourself to put on a really good show. Um, and 
when I had give my closing address, I was surprised at how emotional I became. Like I'm generally not the type of person that gets very emotional. Uh, but as I was reading and becoming appreciative of the enormity of the work and what we were doing, you realize again, it's bigger than yourself. Sure. It's a great personal accomplishment, but it wouldn't be possible without all these speakers agreeing to come in and do me the favor to speak. And, um, and it really takes a team effort. So every person on the executive board, Michael was, not even on the executive board, but he was coming and helping me put up posters outside of the rooms and He's a worker. anything He's a worker. that I needed, you know, and it, it was really wonderful to see. And when he had asked me to, to be a guest on the podcast, we've talked a little bit about career stuff with Michael. Um, but yeah, I was ha happy to join and, and talk to you folks on about anything, whether it's more about service or research. Um, so it's been an honor so far. Yeah, no, it's very, very nice of you to even mention that, right? Just something I wanted to go even really un, un, unseen. I didn't even anticipate you to find out about that. Yeah. But I can still picture your closing address to the audience, right? It was, it was quite, yeah. it was quite, um, quite emotional for sure. Yeah. And, and it's not like, something that's typically done. You know, it's not really person lunch. It was an in-person lunch. No, no, no. I'm saying is this Michael where you bought a certain person yes. breakfast or lunch? Yes. yes. There was some food involved. There was some food involved. There yeah. was some food involved. Well, with, with Michael, there's always some food involved. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the three of us can, can say that that's a commonality we all share. Yes. 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 If, if Most definitely. Yes. 100%. Food sociable, you could say. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Most so, definitely. Um, so uh, without plugging the next conference, are there dates for that yet? I believe so. There, there, uh, let me just double check the dates. I believe it's the third and the fourth of November in Lancaster, <laughs> Lancaster uh, County Convention Center. So you guys have a home now, an actual permanent home. Well, three-year contract. Um, so yeah, so that way you know, because it's it's quite expensive to go to these newer venues with bigger scale and big, you know, more staff for food services and so forth. But you'll see, like, we, it, it's a great, um, it's a great facility. It's really gonna the, the production quality. Like I wanted the conference that, of course, I was responsible for organizing to be as good as it can be. Um, but you're only going to get so good of a quality with the amenities of the hotel that we had at the time. So we tried to put together like the the biggest, baddest conference that we could as a mm -hmm. send off to Harrisburg, which was great. It was our home for over a decade. Um, but you could tell like the production quality of everything is going to be much more like high level uh, moving forward. That's going to be incredible. Yeah, it's going to be great. Congrats. That's, that's Thank you so much. Forward. Absolutely. Yep. Lancaster will be a great event this it's coming. Absolutely. Remember. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd uh, like to circle back a little bit more to your research. Sure. Now, when you're prescribing the exercise, is it resistance-based, more aerobic in nature? Depends Which... on the study. Okay. Um, in, Al in Alzheimer's disease, uh, and related dementias, we focus more on resistance studies because a lot of the studies that have been conducted today have been in what the literature claims is community dwelling older adults. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it involves a mix of walking based programs or some aerobic programming. Um, there have been some resistance studies that have been done. So I don't want to say that there have not been studies that have been done, but the literature is much more, um, sort of scarce. It's very harder to find resistance training studies um, for Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. A lot of those studies are being done right now. Um, and ours is one of them. But in that population, that's sort of the focus. With um, obesity, I had mentioned that 
you know, I'm pretty passionate from a physiological perspective on the effects of exercise on appetite regulation and, and, uh, horm and really gut peptides. So, uh, part of my dissertation work, which, um, we have moved forward into publication is really looking at the effects of different exercise intensities. So we went with ACSM guidelines of what they consider to be light, moderate, and vigorous intensity. And we standardized, um, a 40 minute workout. So basically five minutes of warm up, five minutes of cool down and a 30 minute conditioning bout. And the only thing that was different from the independent variables perspective was the exercise intensity, right? So uh, we knew that if we exercised somebody between, let's say, 30 and 39% uh, heart rate reserve, and then somebody between 40 and 60% heart rate reserve, and then somebody between 60 and above, that you would have that light, moderate, and vigorous intensity. Um, and what we found was that regardless of body weight status, so effectively this trial included both um, what the World Health Organization labels normal weight, so people that have a BMI between 18 and 24.9, um, and obese, so people that have BMI over 30, um, that we can, we were looking at these two sort of divergent groups with respect to body weight classification. And to determine if the gut peptides respond similarly or differently to those populations. So there is a hormone in the gut called ghrelin. You might have heard of it, right? And so that, uh, just like the first couple of syllables come out, it's grr, right? So your stomach is growling. That's how you know that ghrelin is reaping up. And there's an active and an inactive form of uh, the hormone, right? So very much like a light switch. So in a lot of our hormonal systems, they either function under covalent modification or allosteric regulation, right? So covalent modification is basically you, you, you add a phosphate to the hormone and it turns on like a light switch, right? No phosphate, it goes off, okay? Um, and then from an allosteric regulation perspective, the more concentration of a hormone you have, it's kind of like a dimmer switch where it just kind of brightens the room up. So the more that that hormone exerts its effect, right? So the more um, substrate of the hormone that you put in, the more the product is going to convert and exert its effects. So ghrelin is one of these sort of covalent modification hormones where um, when it binds to a, a protein receptor that's capable of recognizing it, it, the location where it binds to, by the way, is the ventral medial hypothalamus. So your regulatory center, sleep, wake cycle, thirst, hunger cycles. So um, when you release ghrelin from the gut, specifically the submucosa of the gastric fundus portion of your stomach, gets in the blood, gets up to the brain, crosses the blood-brain barrier, and binds to this receptor, it turns the... Um, turns the home hormone on and activates it, right? And that sends a sensation that we're hungry, it's time to eat. So the enzyme that is really responsible for providing the mechanism for the phosphorylation of that uh, goat, that, that ghrelin um, hormone on, is something called ghrelin oasal transferase or GOAT, right? And that's not greatest of all time. So it's called GOAT. And so it too is co-secreted from the submucosa of the gastric fundus. And that's what provides the enzyme, which allows the biological reaction to become phosphorylated. So that's really important. So we explored how this enzyme in the ghrelin concentrations change pre to post exercise in uh, normal weight and obese adults. Again, those are world health, health organization classifications, not my own. And, um, 
and we were looking to see the magnitude of the change pre to post exercise and pre to post control. And what we found is that regardless of your body weight status, that exercise curbs your appetite acutely. So, and it didn't matter if you were, um, you know, a overweight or obese classification person, or if you were a normal weight person, that you're, you're, you were less hungry after compared to before almost all the time. So th- it was most pronounced also in the vigorous group. So if you do 60% or more of your heart rate reserve, um, you will have more pronounced, more of a pronounced effect in your hunger um, expression. And that was apparent both from perceived hunger. So we gave people a, a hunger scale. How hungry are you on a scale of zero to 16? And it also aligned up with the, um, the enzymes and the hormones as well. So now to follow up on that project, we're saying, okay, well, can we do something like a high intensity interval training study in overweight and obese college students? And can we truncate the time instead of 40 minutes? Can we truncate the time down to 20 and get a, a similar type of effect? So that was a long, another long-winded one, but that's kind of like you got to hear the whole story sometimes to understand the context. No, you absolutely have to, right? Most people don't understand quite, quite enough. And you come in here with a wealth of knowledge to explain that. But I do like how it does have this positive positive effect mm-hmm. on the total system, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, speaking just anecdotally, I've used that exercise specifically to, I'm going to do it today. I had a very nice night last night with, Michael will know this, uh, there may have been some biscottis involved, you know, um, you give it back in the gym, and I've, I want to touch more because you alluded to it earlier on the emotional regulatory factor that comes with the, uh, the use of exercise, the esteem, you know, the, the release, as long as we're in, in, in hormones, let's talk about the dopamines, the, the, all the, the feeling mm-hmm. hormones that come from that, the psychological win that you went in there and you did something for you. Yes. You take that win out into the very much more complicated exterior world that we all have to navigate. You know, it's, I I think the big picture here is that there are clear indicators that there is a physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual Mm -hmm. response to regular exercise that is a straight shot to, to a better life, a better quality of life. Whatever Absolutely. the baseline is, whatever your baseline is, it will be better if you participate in this regularly. Absolutely. That's, again, one decision, right? Hey, one, I love that. One decision that you have to make. Just do it, right? Doesn't in, – and start by um, – so there's a really good book. Some people, I'm sure, have, have heard of it, but James Clear has a book called Atomic Habits, and it goes into um, sort of like how to build sustainable habits when it's not um, something that's really convenient. So – The idea is James Clear talks about like how you have to have an accountability partner, right? So like if you have a person that you're going to the gym with, it now becomes a social endeavor more than just the physical endeavor, right? So you're going to the gym, you're going to the gym, but like you're really going to the gym to hang out with your buddies, right? And it's, it's, it's kind of more of a social that's the driver 
Um, and so like what we're really interested in now, uh, Asher is like, uh, like when does it become like in one of my colleagues in the psych world, um, when does it become part of your identity? So like you take someone who's a non-exerciser right, and they start exercising at some point, this is a martial arts term in jujitsu. We say that you get bit by the bug, yep, right? Where you get bit by the bug and now it becomes part of your life, right? You start watching videos, you start looking at how you can optimize and make yourself better in every way possible. It's more than just showing up and lifting weights and doing cardiovascular work, 100%. right? Now it becomes part of your identity. It's, it's You talk about it at work. You listen to podcasts on the way to work about it. It becomes all part of you, right? Yes. And so like, I'm really interested in, and I'm not um, a psych, psych expert, definitely not, but when it comes to this, these are some of the things that, you know, with that high intensity project I told you about, yep. <laughs> we're asking some questionnaires to identify Ooh. over six months if we can capture that like, some, some characteristics when they have, whether it's a never again moment and people are sort of just like, I don't want to live like this anymore. Like, what is the thing right. that flips the switch and it changes how you live your life for, for the rest of your life? That's and, a fascinating yeah. question. I never... I'm an ex-fat kid. You know, my joke is I was Eric Cartman. I was short, fat, and angry. <laughs> <laughs> I really was. And um, that I have flipped to a lifelong athlete, that's a fast – I'm going to have to really ponder that one. I don't know. And I hated exercise. I hated gym. I hated, hated, hated the whole yeah. thing. And then somewhere – and I'm going to pinpoint. You've given me homework tonight. Somewhere around 16, 17, when I was kind of over being that, and I dropped a ton of weight and I've never been heavy since, um, I think the driver was, if I had to put a finger on it, was was that I was just tired of that. Even though I was mm -hmm. as young as I was, I actually remember waking up one morning and seeing it, seeing my body being that out of condition, yep. and going, okay, that's it. So there, there wasn't a, a deep construct behind it. But yeah, there is definitely a tipping point in, in, in anything in life where you're like, okay, I'm going to go that direction or I'm going to go in that direction. And for, for me, it was less co you know, like a, a cognitive decision. I deserved better is really yeah. what it boiled down to from me to me. Absolutely. And I think that that is not a selfish thing to say. I, I wish people would get to that point where I deserve better, but the only person who can give me that is me. Like I tell my patients all the time, okay, you're 54 years old, right? You take care of this and this and this and this and this. But if you don't take care of you, everything else is going to go down as well. You yep. know, we're terrific at taking care of ancillary stuff. We're not so great at taking care of ourselves. And somewhere along the line, by that age, I realized already, if this isn't taken care of, then the rest isn't going to really play out that well either. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it starts by taking care of yourself and sort of like uh, – you know, um, you got to put you got to put your own uh, life vest on before you put on someone yeah. else's life vest. You know, exactly. it's sort of like, and uh, you got to put your own mask on before you put someone else help someone put their mask on. And so, um, it's uh, it's something. You, I'm glad you brought that up because it's. I've been really think I've been reading a lot of like books these days on behavior mm -hmm. and it, like um, and like just human nature. A lot of things about human nature, what makes people tick, and like, you know, some of the things that come up is like, well, what is the why? Like, why do people do things the way that they do them? And, 
So I could tell you that, huh, Michael? <laughs> What's that? Simon Sinek, begin with why. That's a great book. Yeah, Simon, did I tell you that one? No, but I just, you said why, and I'm like, oh. Yeah, start, starts with why. Yeah, so if you, you got to, that's more of like finding your, your mission and your goal yeah. in life. And sometimes that evolves over time. But I think a lot of it is what, um, you know, why do people are doing things, right? Like, so for example, what I have this thing that I've been playing with from the, the personal productivity world in terms of like, if there's like, how do we get people on the right track, right? If you listen to someone like you at retired U.S. Navy SEAL, Jocko Willink, he'll say things like, you know, uh, discipline equals freedom. And like, it's very binary, right? It's very binary decision, right? Mm -hmm. But like, it's kind of hard. Like what's good in theory is very tough in practice sometimes to actually want to get up at 3.30 and 4 o'clock in the morning to go do that workout. Um, so I think about like, well, how do I, so it's like, that's one way of doing it. And I'm not. I'm not saying that that's not, I, I think there's, he's got a lot of benefit. He's got a huge social media following, but I start looking at all the variables in my own life and that I'm like, okay, what are some common variables that a lot of people have? And to me, all, everybody's a lot of the problems that people have a lot of the problems oh. stem from, remember I told you this, Michael, one time might've been at the conference. Yeah. Staying up too late. So if you stay up too late and you don't get good sleep, you oversleep your alarm clock uh, because when the alarm goes off, you don't want to get out of bed. Um, so you get that extra hour of sleep and then you feel okay, but then you don't have enough time to make a healthy breakfast. So let's stop at Dunkin' and get a uh, coffee with cream and sugar and maybe a donut. And you're rushing into work. You're not preparing your body and not fueling yourself appropriately. Um, you go through a couple hours of stress. Oh, I forgot to make lunch. I guess I'll go out and eat something that's not as healthy because it's out of convenience versus a lack of preparation. Um, you get out of work at five o'clock, you go home, you got to make some dinner right after mm -hmm. that. Do I really want to go to the gym now? You don't have as much energy. Oh, I haven't had a chance to catch up on some stuff. I really ought to do that laundry. And by the time you sit down, it's like nine or 10 o'clock at night. I deserve to watch TV after a long day. And then you stay up till one, two in the morning. And that's how it all started to begin with. And so if you can just prioritize, I think if you prioritize sleep, your mental clarity will be a lot better. Um, yes. And you'll, you'll be able to make better decisions because you'll have the time to wake up early. And it just seems to get, for me, I found it really helps me get on track. And like, I'm in a very good headspace where I could be effective for, you know, nine to 12 hours a day and have really, really productive work where if I didn't do that, like there's some days where I could get three or four days of work done in one day because I've just figured out how to get it done. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there's other days where I'm not being efficient, where it's like, nothing's really getting done. And I don't have any, I'm like, why am I so tired? So I think a lot of my, my personal thinking, just reading and, and assessing my own life of what works and hasn't worked for me anecdotally, mm -hmm is a lot of the problems that folks have, whether it's diet, exercise, health, it starts with staying up too late. 100%, I think it's genius. And it's one of those things that's so simple, simplistic, it's almost like, well, duh, but yeah. it's not duh, <laughs> it's really not. You know, and I, I get it, it's very seductive to stay up late because no one's gonna bother you, there's no one's gonna text you, no one's email, you're finally by yourself. It's a quote unquote mm -hmm. quality time alone. Yeah. Um, but you're actually shooting yourself in both feet. Yeah. Right. It's, it's so overlooked, the value of sleep. And I definitely don't get the requisite hours of sleep. 
No. Why? <laughs> you know, being in the health and fitness industry, it's it's tough to, to promote something you don't do, but if it's the only unhealthy thing I do, actually, you know. Well, I'll, I'll throw this out there as, as a lifeline, Michael. You're, you're in a, a crunch period, which happens in life, my son, and crunch periods come and go, and you're leveling up and you're doing what you got to do to get through it, but it is not your inherent lifestyle. And those are two different things. You know? Yeah. If, if it developed into a lifestyle, off to the woodshed we go. But it's not. You're getting through what you've got to get through, and that's that's life. You know, there's, there's a difference between segments of life where you really are under the gun, and there's a difference between how you're, you're. And what you're really speaking to, Michael Renault, is intentional living. Yeah. Establishing what's critically important to you and living with that intention. You know, and being okay that you're going to miss, you're going to miss some stuff, and you. But you, the as long as you're living your life. Yes. That's what I, that's what I tell a lot of my students. As long as you're living your life to nobody else's standards. It doesn't matter what your parents think. Like I'm I don't have any children, but my brother has has children, like my friends have children. It it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks cuz this is your life and and <clears throat> you don't want to necessarily think like you don't want to be doing things to appease other people and then you're not happy because you're trying to live up to the life that the Joneses tell you that you have to live in. It's like your life. You, that's the beautiful thing you get. I'm going to steal a line from Matthew McConaughey. You get, you get to write your own story and you get to be your own hero of your story. So, so it's really up to you on shooting for the stars. Right. And, and then asking yourself, okay, like, how do I move forward and positively live that lifestyle? So what I get to a lot of times, and this is a question that like students who maybe don't get into the PT school or, you know, things don't go as well in life for them. And they sit down and they say, where do I go from here? And I'm like, well, what have you been doing to set yourself up for that life? Uh, well, this last year I haven't really done too much. And so what I tell them and uh, someone had to have come up with this quote, but some of the students in my class, they claim it as I own the quote, but I say like, if you have a goal without a directive, it's just a dream. Yeah. You're never, you know, so how do you make a dream reality? You start making some goals and then from how do you accomplish a goal? You break the goal down into a series of objectives and you put them in the appropriate order of what has to happen first, second, third, fourth, fifth, right. and you just start executing the objectives. You get the first goal. Now you're at the new normal, the new level. Objective, 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 goal number two. And then when you start stringing together all these goals, it's surprisingly how easy it seems that the dream ended up coming true. Correct. And it has nothing to do with luck. No. It has nothing to do with luck. Not at all. But you know what I find interesting, and I, I know we're kind of wandering off a little bit into philosophy. Um, I've actually been looking at, at – some of that just for my own pleasure lately, you know, law of attraction and all that kind of stuff. But it is true. I don't find it um, anything other than looking back over 60 years and 42 years of working in three different industries. The truth, everything is everything that you touch and feel and see and do and accomplish is born out of a thought. Mm-hmm. So you, you literally just very eloquently outline the steps of how you take something as ephemeral as a thought in my cranium mm-hmm. and turn it into something substantive that I can touch and feel and move and manipulate. Absolutely. So, you know, all when I was younger, I used to poo-poo it, kind of dismiss it as, you know, okay, 
I don't even know what that means, but I'll be over here. And with the wisdom of the years, I do see that that's in fact what I have been doing all this time. So for everybody that's not 60 and under and everybody who's 60 and older who accomplished it as well, mm-hmm. that's it. It's no more complicated than that. Set little bitty goals that are accomplishable and string them together like pearls and you will arrive at some pretty incredible places over time. And then all the naysayers will say that you got lucky, but really. Of course, because it all just came easy to you. Right. But the reason is you were consistent, you know, and you were, you were consistent and you worked hard and you networked with the right people who helped you accomplish, the, you know, maybe an objective is networking with the right people, right? Absolutely. Who can, so connecting and then that creates an opportunity. And then, you know, so nothing, um, nothing really happens by. I mean, very, I mean, things like that you can't control in life happen by accident, but a lot of things like in terms of like your goals, like, you know, when a lot of it is, you have a lot more of your life in control than you realize there are things that you can't control in life, but a lot of like, in terms of like how we move forward, that's very much in your control, your decision, controlling the things, showing up on time, um, following through, following through, preparing, keeping your word, you know, yeah. yep. those kinds of things are yep. directly within your control. I couldn't agree more, 100%. And you know something? Those, those are like, I'm from the 20th century, 19th, 18th, 17th, 16th, and 23rd, and 24th, and 25th. Those will still be truisms. Yeah, you I know? agree. Those those will still be truisms. Those are universal. They will last as long as, as the species. I completely agree. Um, yeah, showing up on time is a big one. Yeah, let's try that. Giving... <laughs> You know, I, I always like to say, be at least 15 minutes early. It's, I had a professor who said that if you weren't 10 minutes early, you're late. Yeah. I am the son of a German woman. You t- you will show up on time. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, but I think be it's prepared. You know, just getting back. <laughs> you know, we're off this philosophy tangent, but something I've been telling my students now, you know, the undergrad level is it's not only to show up, showing up is great. Giving effort is great. But the next step is applying it and making it concentrated effort. Focus. Focus, exactly. But if you can do all those three things, ultimately getting to focus, you'll be in a pretty good spot when you leave here. I think so. Absolutely, because it's all participatory. If you're sitting on the sidelines, how do you expect results? You're not doing anything. You have to do to get and it seems so self-explanatory, but unfortunately, it's not. Yeah, I think That's you true. can see that, Doctor Bruno, with your students in class, right? This generation's a little bit easygoing. Well, you know, there's pros and cons. I mean, there's definitely some dogs out there, which is yeah. good, you know. Um, no, but I, yeah, yeah, we're not in terms of. I wouldn't say that we're we're criticizing, but it's just the the world is completely different in, in the last twenty years. You know, I mean, twenty years ago, this wouldn't even be possible. I mean, maybe in two thousand and ten, ten years ago, you had things like Skype, but you definitely didn't have microphones that connect to the computer to make this possible, right? So, um, you got twenty years with the iPhone. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, so the world has changed so much that like, um, you know, as someone who's, you know, in my thirties, I look at like the world where I grew up through the evolution of this, right. There wasn't like a block of time where like there was nothing. Right. Um, and then like, I grew up as a kid in like the 1990s in their late eighties, nineties. So like American online to nobody had fast internet because it was too expensive. And then, 
And then American Online, AOL Instant Messenger went away and then into the Facebook and then everybody's got fast internet and then YouTube. And then so you start seeing how like the world has just changed around us. Like, so where I'll tell you this about what I, what I definitely notice about this generation is they understand their value, which is good, right? They understand their value. Um, they understand the importance of standing up for themselves more mm-hmm. in terms of like, they're not just going to like, you know, close their mouth, go to class, put their head down, work and work hard and do the same thing over and over and over again for a whole career. Hard work is definitely something that I think sometimes unfairly gets labeled on the newer generation of students. They're smarter. They're more efficient because they know how to use these tools intuitively. Right. Um, And they understand cost benefit analysis of what's worth and not worth their time. And that's something that I think that um, for years, there was times where I was extremely inefficient trying to figure out stuff like, you know, like I couldn't even like cook dinner and throw a load of laundry in at the same time, you know, like, I mean, I, I was just thinking that this has to be done first. And then when this is completely over, then I'll move on to the next thing. And so being able to label and weave in a lot of these types of things, I think is one of the real strengths of um, the new generation of, of adults and, and contributing members of society. They can handle a lot of different things um, and using technology as a resource to help them do it, I think is a good thing, but yeah, it's, it's, de- it's definitely a different cohort for sure than when um, definitely, you know, I would say, again, I was sort of going through this. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely. Asher's got a couple of years on me. Um, you know, I'm just well. saying just a, just a couple, but in terms of like the world was different from when you were in high school to when I went in high school and then to even when Michael went into high school, the completely. world, I, truthfully, the world that I was born into. And I mean, I was a kid in the 60s. I went to kindergarten in 67. I graduated high school in 80. My world does not exist anymore. And in this podcast right now, between the three of us, you have three different incarnations of flipping from low tech to high tech. Right. Um, So for me, I've had to be highly adaptive, highly adaptive. It's either adapt or you become extinct. But I have... I agree with everything you said about the, the, the strengths of this generation, and I applaud the fact that they're aware of their own worth. I think where people struggle is to find what the what motivates you. What are you passionate about? Like, mm-hmm. okay, I get your I get your boundaries. You're very clear about that. But where I struggle sometimes is, but then what do you want to do? What do you care about? Yeah, I, I could see where that's missing. Yeah, I could see that for sure. Like the why, the why question, right? The yeah, Simon Sinek book, yes, right? Like exactly. what, what is your, you know, what do you want to do? And so the way that I try to frame that to help students that are unclear about stuff is I say, okay, so it's, you know, regardless if you're a health scientist student, exercise science student, it doesn't matter. Right. You, have 20, you have 24 hours in a day. If there was like, if I was to tell you that you're on vacation for the next two weeks and, you know, you can't go, you can't go to a beach and, you know, you can't go traveling, like, you have to do something productive with your time off. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you could do whatever you want. You could write a book. You could do whatever you want. What would you want to do? And then when they start asking those types of questions, you start figuring out what skills they have, finding out about their interests, and then how do we connect your skills with what you're interested in to produce a product 
that the market will value at a particular and that becomes a career. And then, then that sort of like gets them on the right track sometimes. I agree. With so you. I, a lot of, I spent a lot of time on that type of stuff. Michael, that's <laughs> the conversation we've had over the last five years. Yeah. You know, if you go yeah. back to our roots, you know, I always saw, that, you know, when Michael and I met, he was 20. And mm-hmm. I just saw like packed potential. And he doesn't remember this, but I do. Our very first conversations where he was sort of like fishing around. He had his associate's degree from RCC and all this. And I'm like, well, you love this. We were in the gym. This is a career waiting to happen. There's some aspect of this. And here we are five years later. And, you know, he's a baby genius on his way to some gorgeous career here. So (laughs) I completely agree with your steps. Find out what you care about. Find a way to make a career and find the market value of it. Yeah, you are. And then you're passionately invested in what you do. And that's a great life. Yeah. And also make sure that you have some stakes involved with it, because if you don't have any stakes or something to lose, you won't have anything to fight for because nobody's watching. Nobody's going to hold you against if you don't meet your goal. Right. So, for example, um, Tim Ferriss does talks a lot about this in his books. Like he wants to go on. He realized the realities that he's not going to be able to spend forever with his parents his parents own mortality are going to die at some point like all of us will die at one point and so when he starts looking at life expectancy and starts winding the clock back and starts figuring out how many times he visits his parents a year Mm -hmm. he's much more willing to just cough the money up and put a down payment on a vacation to go on vacation with his parents as opposed to oh we'll go on vacation next year mom and dad right and so it becomes sort of this thing where like it becomes a very real number that you're going to have a limited number of opportunities to meet with these folks um, that you care about. And so skin in the game is sort of what it's called, right? Yeah. Is you have to have some something that is that um, is going to keep you coming back and make you fight for it. And yeah. aside from just passion, because if you just have passion and it's like not tied to a tangible goal that can be converted into something um, of real accomplishment and value, it, you know, someone could, take far longer to reach it than they, than it should be. So, you know, something is like, okay, five years to accomplish this goal. You could have accomplished it in 18 months if you really committed to it, you focus. know, like yeah. focus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Here yeah. it's back again. Focus. Anyhow. <laughs> Anyhow. <laughs> what would you like to, um, to leave the audience behind? Hopefully keep yeah. up with us. Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, for me, both as a researcher, as someone who teaches courses in exercise physiology, serves as program director for the exercise science program here at Drexel, uh, I think, you know, and then talking about some of the, the, the life lessons about how to find your goal, how to find your why. To me, um, I live my life under three pillars. I said this in my Mark ACSM speech. I advocated it in my promotion packet when I went up from an assistant professor to associate professor. Um, and it's something that I put into my ACSM fellowship application, which is really to me, the common thread that really integrates everything that I've become. And so whether you're a student of exercise science, somebody that is, uh, maybe looking to change careers is three things, mentorship, whether it's peer mentorship or senior mentorship, engagement, Right. Put yourself out there and try, work hard, do something for others um, and self-awareness. Reckon, don't fake. I mean, you can fake it till you make it, but that gets you only so far. Mm. Being honest with yourself about what your real limitations are, what you need to work on. Find a mentor who is good 
at that thing that you're not good at. Let them coach you, let them mentor you, and then engage. And over time, if you consistently do that, you will be on the right track. And I could tell you that for me as somebody that switched my major three and four times as an undergrad till I finally found exercise physiology is what I wanted to do. And then I doubled up in business. Um, it was, I said this in my speech, it was somebody that cared about me at the time more than I actually cared about myself. Um, it was a, it was an undergraduate advisor. He's been on my podcast before Dr. Sean Walsh, and he saw the potential very much how Asher saw the potential in you, Michael. And, um, he mentored me, gave me a wake-up call in terms of what I could be versus what I was, um, in encouraged me to come to the New England ACSM conference. I engaged. I made connections with people who were on the executive board. That gave me opportunities to go to graduate school. So those three things, finding a good mentor, and a mentor doesn't mean that you're not mentally strong. It means they have experience in something that you don't have, and they're investing in you as a person. Engagement and self-awareness, and that, that continual thread and cycle to me has really been the common thread of how I've gotten to where I am today and where I'm going for the future. Well, thank you, Dr. Bruno. It was a pleasure you discussing both. today with you. Yeah, this has been great. This thank you so ball. much.